I felt like this whole new sense of like like being born again and like being appreciative that I have this life and like not you know when you're alive you can do anything like that's what my mom says to me like as long as you're alive you can do anything you can you can continue you know Welcome to a special episode of Figuring It Out. I'm Ashley Garrison. I'm a 21-year-old recent college grad who's trying to find her way. I definitely don't have all the answers, but I'm hoping to find some through the conversations I have here. In each episode, I interview inspiring young people about everything from how they're tackling imposter syndrome to how they're developing stronger body image. I hope you'll join me so we can figure things out together. Now, Let's get into today's episode. I spent virtually all of last semester experiencing a lot of academic anxiety and chronic stress. I think most students have dealt with both of those things at some point, but there isn't really a blueprint for managing them, especially when they escalate. My sleep was terrible and it was sometimes difficult to focus, but I naively worked through my burnout. Especially this past year, I found solace through my discussions with friends, professors, and even some peers on Twitter. Because of those conversations, I felt it was important to bring the topic of mental health to this podcast once again. So, we're talking about mental health today. This episode features three voices. That of a psychologist named Dr. Michael Vanderlyn, along with that of two young people named Bazzi and Sonia, who were kind enough to share their stories with me. I had fun creating this, and I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here's the episode. Hello, and thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I'm so excited for this mental health episode. I've been talking about doing it for months now because this school year has been very mentally challenging, I think, for all students, people that aren't students, my peers, people that have graduated. It's just been a tough year. Um, But yeah, I love discussing mental health and I love learning about psychology. So I'm really happy to have you here. But before I get into the questions, I just wanted you to introduce yourself to everyone and tell them who you are and what you do. Sure, I'm happy to. And thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to talk about these two. Uh, I'm a bit biased, but I also am very interested in mental health. I think everyone should be. And so it's a pleasure to be here. Um, My name is Michael Vanderland and I am a postdoctoral fellow at Weill Cornell Medicine, where I'm specializing in pediatric neuropsychology. So I I earned a PhD from Yale University in 2019 uh, in clinical psychology. And now I'm focusing really on neuropsychology. So that brain behavior relationship, and in particular, the way that um, cognition relates to how we function in daily life. And I really work with a lot of kids and adolescents. and, And a particular interest of mine is how mental health um, or psychiatric symptoms or conditions, things like anxiety or depression, how that affects our lives in a lot of different ways, both how we feel and then the ways that we think our cognitive functioning and how that influences then our daily experiences, whether they be at school or um, with our friends or, or so forth. So happy to you know bring my experiences to the table and, and talk through these important topics. So the first question that I've been asking everyone is one that's kind of subjective, but I was just wondering how you define strong mental health. I know that for, you know, different people, it means different things. They kind of have different 
markers that they use to make sure that they're feeling okay. Um, I know like for me, the way that I feel when I wake up really helps me figure out, you know, how my mental health is doing. So yeah, how would you define it? And I guess what does strong mental health look like for you in practice? It's a really great question. And, you know, from my perspective, I think there can be a lot of misperceptions of what strong mental health means. I think that we live in a society that really promotes always feeling happy, always feeling good, always being uh, on your A game and doing your very best, right? And of course, we want to feel those things and be doing our best, but that's not always going to be our experience. That's not realistic, nor should it be. And so, I think strong mental health is about also letting yourself feel the unpleasant things, what we refer to as negative emotions, Um, things like anxiety or sadness or anger or frustration or fear. Those may be unpleasant emotions, but they're not necessarily bad emotions. And so to experience those from time to time, I think is quite normative. And so for me, strong mental health can be letting yourself experience the gamut of emotions, not just trying to feel good, but actually sitting with and accepting those times that don't feel good and knowing that that's okay. And with any emotional experience, having a little bit of homeostasis, you're not just in one emotion all the time, you're able to kind of navigate experiencing all these emotions, but come back to baseline where things start to go awry from my perspective as a clinician is when someone may get stuck or be uh, in a certain emotional state for a prolonged period of time where they can't shake that. And in particular, not just when it becomes very chronic or the duration is long, but when it starts to get in their way and impede them from then doing the things that they uh, really want to be doing, whether that be, again, within school or career pursuits or engaging with their friends or family or being social. Once you start to see um, that fall apart a little bit or become more challenging, maybe that's an indicator that there are some difficulties as it relates to mental health. But in terms of strength, I think it is that you're able to experience all of these things and even when they may be hard, hold them and sit there with them um, and let them be informative to you uh, as to how you you know take your next step forward and where you go from there. Yeah, I think so often when we, I say we, but really, I guess I'm referring to myself, but when I do feel, you know, some of those negative emotions, my first thought sometimes is to try to, you know, fix that emotion or immediately get out of that state it's, it's, it, because it's uncomfortable to be, you know, in those situations or in those circumstances. But I think what you were saying about learning to kind of accept and, and move through it really is also very important. I remember when I talked to Ariel for the first installment of this series, that was something that she said as well. I think she used the phrase accept and acknowledge. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something that I'm constantly working on. And also, I guess, try constantly trying to remind myself that usually, you know, feelings are not permanent. I also spoke with Dr. Vanderlyn about sleep. I've had sleep issues for over a year now, but I've always known that sleep impacts your mental health and vice versa. Here's our little discussion on sleep. One thing I also wanted to talk about was sleep because partially because I am very interested in this topic because I do have some light insomnia. My problem isn't going to sleep. My problem is staying asleep. So I sometimes will wake up 
I guess it's technically not the middle of the night. It's more like the early morning. <laughs> um, so I'll, I'll wake up too early and I'll kind of like lay there, try to go back to sleep. And overall, it just leads to not feeling great. It's definitely improved a lot, I think, within the past month or so being back at school and really trying to formulate some type of routine. But as someone that does have some struggles with sleep, I know a lot of my peers also don't get a lot of sleep um, because, you know, they have assignments or whatever. I'm just curious about the effects of lack of sleep on the brain. Um, and also if you have any suggestions for how one can improve their their sleep hygiene or their habits. I agree. Sleep, I think, is very important. Um, it's how we spend a large part of our lives is asleep. And uh, we do that because it's necessary. It's it's meaningful and it's, it's critical for us to uh, survive and do the things that we do every day. And, I, and actually, um, one thing I'll say about sleep before going into what it does to our brains and how we can um, improve sleep is that sleep can be a really great indicator of whether things um, aren't going so well with mental health. Of course, sometimes we cut sleep because we have an exam or an assignment where we have to pull a late night or an all nighter. Um, but when those aren't in place and we're still not sleeping well, it's not always the case that it's an indicator, but it can be an indicator that um, maybe uh, there's a little bit more kind of under the hood, if you will, uh, that's bothersome. And, and maybe that's another indicator that it might be nice to either ramp up the walks with the dog or, or the Pilates or the yoga, um, or go talk to someone and talk to a therapist. And I just say that because sometimes people have a hard time kind of finding out what is the right sign that I may benefit from talking to someone and emotions are so subjective, but sleep and other things like appetite, where you're seeing these kind of more clear cut shifts and what would be typical for you can be that, uh, heads up. Okay. That maybe I should try to shake things up and do things a little bit differently. That said, going back to your question, <laughs> um, what I'll say about sleep in the brain is that, uh, I think of, um, you know, the brain as kind of being a limited capacity set of resources. Um, and those resources are used for a variety of different things to regulate our energy levels, to regulate our appetite, to regulate our emotions, to regulate our attention, etc. And when you're not getting enough sleep, you're taking that limited set of resources and you're allocating that much more towards the regulation of energy because likely if you're not sleeping, you're experiencing low energy throughout the day or what we sometimes call fatigued, especially if it's really low energy or chronic low energy. And when you're taking those resources and allocating them towards the regulation of energy, then that well is uh, less full and you have less resources to then allocate towards attention and emotions and appetite, et cetera. So common things that we see when people aren't sleeping well is that they are more distractible. They have a harder time focusing on the things that they're doing. Um, I personally, to overshare, I'm very cranky and irritable when I don't get sleep. And that's because you know I have less resources to kind of keep myself in check and regulate those emotions. Um, and then especially if you're, uh, you know, not sleeping and not getting the amount of, you know, food or nutrition you need, it's kind of a double whammy. And so it can have a lot of effects uh, in our daily life. But one of the ones directly related to the brain is that attention system. We're more distractible. We have a hard time focusing. We may be more forgetful, not because we can't remember things, but they actually probably didn't get in to our brain uh, properly because we're so distractible. So it can have a lot of effects. 
And in terms of what to do about sleep, I think there are a number of different things that I would plug. The term that you used is spot on sleep hygiene. And that's really about trying to cultivate a set of behaviors that are going to promote sleep uh, so that you're sleeping optimally. So some suggestions related to that is try to have a pretty regular schedule or a set bedtime and awake time and stick to that as much as you can. And within that, ensure that you're getting adequate sleep uh, for you. There are some individual differences, but at least shooting for like a seven or eight hours is something that we would recommend and try to be consistent with that and try to keep your routine just before bed pretty consistent as well. Um, so, you know, have that nighttime routine where you're flossing and brushing your teeth and washing your face and then getting into bed and, you know, whatever that is, try to keep some consistency with that. It starts priming your body to start getting ready or preparing for that sleep stage. Things that will disrupt that would actually be, you know, and it's sometimes hard to avoid, but a lot of screen time right before bed or, you know, you know, starting to um, get engaged or stay engaged on something that you're working on that's really promoting a lot more attention or high energy levels that may then disrupt that ability to relax uh, and decompress and fall asleep. My other question for you is that I came across the phrase cognitive restructuring when I was looking through some of your publications and I thought that sounded very interesting. I feel like I somewhat have an idea of what that means, but I was wondering if you could talk about what exactly that means. I'd be happy to. So cognitive restructuring is a, a clinical term. It's often one of the tools that we use within many forms of psychotherapy. Cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the primary forms where that skill is utilized most. And it's born out of uh, empirical research on cognitive theories of emotion. Um, so if we look at more basic affective science or science about emotions themselves, a lot of research from these cognitive theories suggests that Emotions are responses to specific events. So we have things that happen in our daily life all the time. And what really is an important driver and what how we feel in response to the event isn't necessarily the event itself. Certainly it could be. But what can be really influential is how we appraise the event, what we, how we interpret the event. So, for example, if you're, um, you know, walking down the street of New York and you happen to see someone that you know pass you and you know you go to wave and they just kind of go right past you without waving back without smiling back which isn't that uncommon in New York but where I'm from in Texas that would be more uncommon because uh, people are used to waving but nevertheless if someone uh, doesn't reciprocate the way that you expect them to how do you interpret that is it that they ignored you that that doesn't feel so good is it that that they didn't see you oh, well, that maybe doesn't feel great, but it feels a lot more neutral relative to the other interpret, uh, interpretation. And so the way that you're appraising situations can be really influential in terms of how you feel. What cognitive restructuring refers to is a bit more of an analysis and you know, critical thinking about those thoughts. If we take specific situations, let's look at what was our appraisal there. And then let's try to critically analyze, is that the most accurate or most helpful interpretation of that event? Might there be another interpretation that 
either is more likely or at least a little bit more workable or helpful to ourselves. And through that critical analysis, could we really try to reframe or restructure what might happen? Oh, let's go back to the example. I know that person who's walking. I have no indication to think that person would ignore me, is mad at me. He or she never has done something like that before. What is the likelihood that they didn't see me versus intentionally ignored me? Well, with all of the data that I have about that person, it's much more likely they didn't see me. That seems so out of character. And now that I rethink about it like that and adopt that interpretation that may be a little bit more benign, might I feel differently about the situation that previously made me feel not so great? So it's really that idea of our interpretations of situations are important in terms of how we feel. And... When we start to think that our interpretations, which happen quite automatically, aren't helping us feel great, or we may notice that they're over time tending to yield emotions that feel unpleasant more and more of the time, that could be an indicator that we want to analyze and then restructure the way that we think to make it a little bit more helpful and hopefully uh, lighten the, the feelings that we get from what could be ambiguous situations. I'm now going to play a bit of my conversation with Sonia Farouk, who is a recent graduate of University of Michigan. We talked about a few different things in our interview, but this excerpt specifically focuses on anxiety. Here's Sonia. Did you have an understanding of mental health and what anxiety meant? Like, was that something that you were talking about, I don't know, in middle school or high school with your peers? I guess, how do you think that your identity, especially in your in your adolescence, shaped your understanding of mental health? Or was that something that you became, I think, more familiar with in college? Yeah, so growing up, I had no idea about mental health at all. When I was growing up, I grew up in like an Islamic private school, and I struggled there a lot in terms of finding my own community there as well, which is funny because that was similar to how I felt my first year at college. But um, I think then is when I really started to have anxiety, but no one was able to tell me that it was anxiety. I was just always labeled as sensitive. I was labeled as like a worry wart, you know, that people say. My mom used to call me that a lot. And someone that was just like very easily bothered by things. And now when I think about it, that was anxiety. Um, And I didn't know what it was until I got into high school. So middle school, we did not have much of an, I did not have much of an understanding of mental health either. And my understanding of it was that if you did have a mental health issue, you had to cope on it, cope with it on your own. And you had to seek help if you wanted to. But when you did seek help, like there's a huge stigma in doing so. So like, I remember one of my mom's friends was um, schizophrenic. She was diagnosed and it was, um, she was diagnosed with schizophrenia later on in her life. And I had no idea what that meant. I thought it meant that she had, you know, that something really bad and tragic had happened to her, that she was never going to be able to function like a normal human being again. I just had no understanding of it, the way that it was presented to me. And I think that's so wrong because like people that have mental health issues or are challenged with mental health problems are normal people. And, you know, it's just another thing that we have to, you know, work with and figure out how to navigate through. And so growing up, I 
didn't have an understanding of what that was. In high school, I the first two years, I don't think I I felt any sort of like need to seek out what mental health was either because for me that was a swift transition from middle school you know same folk and things like that but it wasn't until I started taking AP classes in junior year where my anxiety spiked it spiked to the degree where I was like always worrying about my grades always worrying about the work that I had to do to a very unhealthy degree and I did well in those classes like you know like I'm sure we're all A students and Every time I attempted to take an AP exam, like I would do great on the practice exams. You know, I would get a four or five, whatever. But every time I took an AP exam, I would get a three. And I just remember every exam I took, I felt like like I was falling into a hole kind of. Like I was just trapped. And the answer, I knew what I was doing, but at the same time, I just like felt this like rush where I just couldn't get anything done. And so every AP exam I've taken besides one and I took like six or seven, I got a three. And on my practice exams, I would get like fours and fives. And so I was like, what's going on? Like, what's wrong? And then my senior year after I graduated and got my scores, my mom comes up to me and she's like, maybe you have test anxiety. And I'm like, really? Do you think I have test anxiety? So that was like a new like concept to me. But at the same time, I think that I had gotten a little bit more exposure to it the last two years where I was like, maybe it is a possibility that I have it you know, maybe I do have something with anxiety. And I remember my mom sat out this anxiety counselor who just basically gives you tips on how to deal with your anxiety. And I found her to be really helpful my first year. I mean, to the degree that she could help, she tried. And I used a lot of those tools um, my first year when I needed them. So for me, coming into terms of my anxiety, it was more so like, oh, I just have a little bit of anxiety. But I think it really hit me when I went to college that it was anxiety was a huge part of my life when I entered. And, you know, it still is. But I felt like, oh, my God, maybe there's something wrong with me. Like, maybe this is not normal. Having so much stress, having so much anxiety, constantly worrying, maybe that's not normal. And I had basically deemed myself as, you know, kind of what I had deemed my mom's friend as, like, not a normal person anymore. And, um it was, it was a very detrimental feeling because I kept trying to fight it. Like, no, 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 you're the same person. You just have to get help. But I think the issue is when you are not raised in the sense that when you're younger, you can talk about these issues very openly and freely. You feel really limited into how much you can grow into your mental health. You know, like a lot of people, they can start out with severe anxiety and then basically not have it anymore because now they have the tools to deal with it. But for me, I never grew up with those tools. So I continued to you know, have this cycle of self-deprecation, constant worry and all of that. And so I think it was more so towards, I would say, like my first year at college where I was like, mental health matters. Mental health is real. And how can we go about it? I don't know. But people do struggle with it. And that's when I came into terms with like, okay, the mental health community is huge. Like everyone deals with different types of mental health issues. Um, But it's kind of sad that it took me until maybe my senior year, junior, senior year of high school to really understand mental health is is real. It's a real concept. Especially, I think, early career young adults, people that are really just trying to get started or pursue grad school. I think sometimes we think, and I'm guilty myself of this, that you have to sacrifice your mental health or your sleep or 
everything <laughs> to reach that goal or to get to where you want to go, whether that's the next internship or a certain score on a standardized test, whatever. But I think that it's something that I've just seen so much throughout college and peers and myself. And I think that I guess the one thing I figured out <laughs> in these past four years is that that's really not necessary. It's really not. It's never the answer. And I figured out that when I do have to consistently sacrifice some aspect of my well-being for a goal, it means that I'm not doing something right. Like whether mm -hmm. that's prioritizing or maybe I'm just being really inefficient with my study time. Like I'm sitting there for four hours, but I'm getting like an hour's worth of work done or whatever. I think it's really, it's really helped me identify the ways that I can work smarter so that I don't have to, you know, pull all-nighters all the time. I say this, but last semester was a disaster <laughs> for me, but I'm trying to be better about it this semester. So anyway, all of that leads me to my question, which is for you, how have you found a balance between, you know, being ambitious and getting things done, but also being able to take time for yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that journey is hard <laughs> to, to get to that point for sure. And I think that I'm still trying to figure out how I can have that sense of balance. But a couple of years ago, almost two years ago, I went through a traumatic event that really impacted me in the sense that I just didn't want to be here anymore. And I didn't think there was a point of living. And I'm basically I was having suicidal ideations. And it was really, really hard for me that summer to get through even thinking about, you know, doing anything productive, because I just didn't feel like anything I would do would lead me anywhere else, you know. So after I like got through that event, thank God, and I started school again, I felt the sense of like, newness that I was like a new kind of person because I had been stuck in that like rut for so long that I and you know that's done from also like the first two years of my university experience of like not being able to fit in and the event that I went through that like when I started school again that's also when I started my public health program so that was my junior year I felt like this whole new sense of like like being born again and like being appreciative that I have this life and like now you know when you're alive you can do anything like that's what my mom says to me like as long as you're alive you can do anything you can you can continue you know and when you don't have like that sense of urgency anymore it doesn't feel like it's worth it and so when I went back to school I finally felt that urgency again to do something you know and luckily that's also when I started doing Dilse. So after I went through that whole like debacle I like realized that my life is worth it and like in order to make my life worth it I have to take care of myself like it doesn't mean that I continue to you know overbook myself or overwhelm my stuff myself or do things that make me unhappy but really try and figure out what are the things that are going to make me content? Like I was saying earlier, what are the things that are going to continue to help me grow? How can I build my resilience? And I think that's when I was like, okay, now I can find a balance between, you know, what I consider professionally, what I consider academically, and what I consider is good for my health, just, you know, for myself. And that's when I 
found community and that's when I found, you know, um, like Dose stuff. And when I started, I'm also part of a magazine. I started an earring business. Like I did things for myself so that, you know, I could balance what it's like to live life and have a goal, have a really great goal of, you know, being a physician or working in public health, but also like working towards, um, my own creative goals are working towards things that make me feel like I'm consistently growing. I think that I do that now by um, like little things like, you know, not overbooking myself or spending a certain amount of time for a certain hobby that I have or seeing my friends twice a week or something like that. So I always tried to see the blessing in being here and being able to have the chance to continue to grow and continue to impact people and empower people and I think the best way to do that is to find that sense of balance and like I said I'm not perfect at that I don't have a balance all the time like last semester like you said it was hard it was really hard I was taking like a really bad chem class and um, it was really hard for me to find the balance but I was like you know I've been through so much to the point where I'm like I can just get through that too. Like as long as you, you know, you just get through it, like you'll get through it and then you can do more fun things, you know? So that's kind of how I like motivate myself. But I think like keeping that in mind that like your professional or academic goals is not like your be all end all. Your be all end all is you, right? So like you want to do what's best for you in all aspects of your life. And I think like that can really help in shifting and finding that sense of balance in terms of like what makes you content and what makes you feel like you can grow and be resilient. And now that you've heard from Sonia, here's a bit of my chat with Dr. Vanderlyn about coping with anxiety and hard times. So yeah, one thing I've been thinking about is just how we can develop some resiliency and some coping strategies, because as I mentioned earlier, I've just been wondering, how can I develop some strategies that allow me to deal with challenges both in relation to the pandemic and not, because even outside of the pandemic in regular life, I think one thing I've realized is that challenges don't ever necessarily stop coming. You have to just learn how to to deal with them, and you can't necessarily break down every single time. So yeah, this is a twofold question, which the first thing, like if you had any suggestions for coping with anxiety or getting through particularly anxious moments. And the second would just be, I guess, general suggestions for really developing that resiliency and being able to deal with, you know, the difficult situations that inevitably will come our way. Very timely question. Um, And I think that, you know, I'm so impressed with you. I feel like you you said for one psychology class, you're so psychologically minded, Ashley. So it's really been a pleasure to kind of talk about these topics with you. Um, so in terms of some of the ways that, you know, I recommend people to, to deal with anxiety, I think there are a few different things. Um, one of the things that I commonly uh, recommend is practicing and it's a practice it's a skill uh it's not a one-stop shop real quick fix it's something that you do over time because it can be a hard process but that being um meditation or mindfulness um so often like i was just saying with anxiety our thoughts can be going a hundred miles a minute um either in the future or, or maybe kind of revisiting things in the past but it's not very much here in the present and so both the art of 
breathing and breath work. And when you translate that also towards a more mindfulness-based approach of trying to be in the present moment, it can slow things down a little bit. Um, And sometimes just that act of slowing down, taking a breath, slowing your thoughts, often as a byproduct, brings anxiety down a little bit. So with mindfulness, the goal isn't actually to feel less anxious or to feel less stressed. The goal is to drop in and be uh, present in the present moment, be aware of the present moment and sit with that. And sometimes the present moment is uncomfortable. Sometimes the present moment is filled with uncomfortable feelings, um, negative emotions, discomfort physiologically, uh, or painful thoughts. But the idea being, even if it's uncomfortable, can you be mindful of that and aware of that and not um, not fight against it or resist against that or not latch on to that and follow it more? Um, and if being present and aware and mindful of it, do you notice that there's even a relative decrease in what anxiety would have otherwise been. So what I mean by that is, should you latch on to that? Should you follow the train of thought into the future, into the past, or fight against it? That may actually make you feel worse. You're kind of taking something that's painful and you're not accepting it. And that often uh, results in suffering. But if you drop the non-acceptance and you let it be and you sit with it in the present moment, it may still be painful, but it's less suffering. So sometimes it's a relative decrease. Um, it's a a relativity question of even if it's painful, is it less painful than it would be? Should you not be mindful of it and try to just let it be and accepting of it? So, um, you know, that's one explanation of it. Sometimes people do mindfulness meditation directly to feel less stressed and that's fine too. And there are a lot of apps out there um, that are helpful for mindfulness. The other things that I'll say are, and this kind of goes into your second question of mental resiliency. Um, keeping engaged in the things that bring you joy and that you know to calm you. So, you know, as a psychologist, I say, yes, I can throw out recommendations of things that I think you should do. um, But you know you best, you know what makes you feel good, and you know what brings you down. And so often what happens when we're feeling stressed or anxious is we let those fall by the wayside. And we instead focus on the thing that's on our to do list or in front of us, that's a challenge. And we give that our undivided attention and all of our energy and effort. And that makes intuitive sense, you're trying to get the thing crossed off or taken care of so that the stress goes away. But when that thing that to do list is very chronic, you can't let those things fall by the wayside for so long. Because if you do, then you're not filling your tank up uh, with that energy and with those resources needed to do the task at hand and manage your emotions. So what I often recommend to people is make sure you're still peppering in those things that feel good and and de-stress you. Um, Even if it feels like you don't have the time, because should you not, you're going to be less efficient and effective at the thing that you're doing anyways. So for me, use that bath bomb, put on that mud mask at the end of the day, light that candle, like do the things that make you feel extra cozy um, or self-love. Take a walk, go outside. Uh, Exercise is really good for bringing down stress and bringing down anxiety. Um, Even in the pandemic, can you find a safe way to do that? Uh, I'm on my second round of 30 days of yoga with Adrian, a YouTube series where this person, you know, this amazing yoga instructor from Austin, Texas is leading these 
20 minute to 60 minute yoga classes that I'm doing yes, in like 500 square feet of that, but it makes me feel good. And it's a way to kind of bring something back into my life, rather than not doing it where which would probably result in, in more stress um, or anxiety. So keeping engaged in those things that bring you happiness and bring down stress, even when it feels like there's not the time to. That's really important, I think, for the long term, relating to what you're asking about uh, resiliency. Next, you will hear from my good friend, Bazzi, who is also a recent college graduate. I think by the time this episode airs, she will officially be a graduate of Cornell University. This clip is focusing on social anxiety, what that means for her, and how she deals with it. Mental health, it's really so individualized and personal, and I know that for different people, anxiety looks different for them, and it looks different on different days. I remember I interviewed a guest previously and she was saying that she it doesn't really manifest for her physically at all no one would ever be able to tell that she feels any type of anxiety and she can like very much pretend that she's not Mm -hmm. whereas I talked to another friend and they were saying that they visibly just will look terrible like they might like shiver or just you can see it in their face so yeah for you like is it more internalized or is externalized and I guess have you gotten to the point where you can discuss that openly with, you know, people in your life? Oof, hard hitter. Um, so I'll describe how it looks and then who I can discuss, who, who I typically discuss it with. Um, I would say for me, it's mostly internal unless it gets, I've only seen my anxiety externalized once. And that was when I was almost having an anxiety attack. Like, honestly, looking back, I probably was having an anxiety attack, but it just manifested in the physical and that's when I started getting freaked out. But normally, like, my anxiety is more so, like, repetitive thoughts or, like, um, kind of, like, repetitive negative thoughts, I would say, and just tossing situations over and over and over and, like, trying to... I look at them from all angles And, like, I kind of can get lost in my head, like, going down a downward spiral. Um, And so I strategically call friends sometimes if I recognize – because sometimes, like, it'll just go down a downward spiral and I won't think of it as, like, going getting bad until it's coming up again and again and again. Or it's just – it's ruined my mood because I keep – I will keep going back to the same instance or the same person that I'm interacting with. And just be, I don't even know how to describe that. Like, yes, I'm anxious about my performance in that interaction, but also I'm like kicking myself, if that makes sense. I don't know. I haven't actually tried to phrase it out loud before. So this is an exercise for me. But I would definitely say that it looks like repetitive thoughts. It looks like um, definitely hesitation. Like, I don't. You, I'm so scared to like go out in places where I'm alone or like I'm just not with someone. Like I need, I need someone else to be coming with me. Like I, I've not unfortunately as explorative as I'd like to be or rather independent as I'd like to be. And like your friend, I can put up a good front. Like I'm not anxious, but like I'm having a meltdown inside half the time. Um, And so sometimes I'll like, 
get on my phone or like just look too busy or I'll go the cool and quiet route versus like I'm very anxious and I want to like escape right now. Um, So I kind of play it off as like me being cool, but (laughs) I'm not exactly sure how well I'm succeeding at that one. Um, And then, yeah, so I would definitely say it's repetitive thoughts just keeps coming to mind because like it just will keep. I'll keep going like until I process it or like get distracted with something else or someone again, like I'll strategically call my friends so they can give me a third party view to say, they normally reassure me like, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. And like, eventually maybe I'll accept that. Um, if I don't, then it's definitely like distracting myself until I can redo the situation or feel as though I've made things right. Um, and in terms of how open I've been about it, my, ironically, my leadership positions have made me more open about it just because I want people to, I think it's important for, it was important for me to see myself in leaders. And it's like a revolutionary act, I think, to like lead with vulnerability instead of like being, having a wall up or having a face up. I think to have people see you and like appreciate that you didn't do things despite insert the blank, like you were able to do. So like, for example, I, then this ties back to your um, question too. I told my sister that I have anxiety, like social anxiety, and that's really bad. Um, Cause I was just having one of those moments where I needed someone to talk to and she was just happened to be on the phone. And I told her, it was the first time I told anyone in my family that I have anxiety. Um, I've been much I've been much more open about it, like with my friend group or with people on campus in general um, versus my own family, which is interesting. And so that was my first, I was scared, but I was like, okay, like she's going to, she is the only person able to help me through this moment right now. And she said something, she was like, um, looking at like just my accolades, I guess, or accomplishments as she's known me. She was like, I don't know how you were able to like do so much and like you have anxiety, like you are elite, like you speak publicly all the time. Like you talk to a lot of people, like your position requires that you be a level of sociable. That's like more than average. So it's crazy that you did this with anxiety. And I spoke to my best friend after that conversation to process that. And my best friend was like, her name's Jamila. I love her. Um, but my best friend was like, actually it's less about like how much you were able to accomplish despite you having anxiety and more like, being in awe of yourself that you accomplished all of that and you have anxiety, like that is something to be proud of, not something to be like questioning or insecure about. Um, And so in terms of who I've shared it with, it's been more private, but in terms of using it as a tool of revolution or empowerment for other people, because I don't know who else has anxiety. It's one of those things that are like, it might not be as physically apparent, And so I would want them to see themselves in me. I think it's really important that you see yourself in positions of power and that you see yourself in people that you admire, um, even for their flaws or even for their shortcomings that they did it anyway, um, as much as like their strengths. So because I know I would have appreciated that being a freshman or a sophomore, just being a junior, anything in any setting, I try to be transparent about it as I 
lead or as I step up in situations so that everyone can just, A, it also helps like, so people are aware, like I'm anxious, like I'm not always going to respond to you or answer calls or like do things like there, it inhibits the way I work sometimes. Um, But also that I hope it makes me more trustworthy, I guess, um, or more vulnerable. And there's strength in that vulnerability, like for me to like not have to hide this aspect of myself and like suffer internally, as well as for others to like to be like, oh, wow, she did it. I can do it, too. And lastly, here's what Dr. Vanderlyn had to say about social anxiety, both what it is and how to manage it. I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about social anxiety and what it technically means and how it affects people. I know that it's different for everyone, but yeah. Absolutely. And so you're right. So um, shyness or introversion is uh, dissociable from social anxiety disorder, as we refer to it. And some people who have social anxiety disorder who meet criteria for that uh, disorder are actually very extroverted people in some contexts. Um, So when you think about social anxiety disorder, at the core of the disorder, uh, the characteristic feature is this um, concern or worry or fear of judgment from other people. So whether you are um, talking to someone one-on-one or giving a presentation in front of a class, there's a social component where there's a concern or fear of being evaluated negatively by other people. and we all experience some level of anxiety in a lot of those contexts, at least in some of the ones that are more commonly illicit social or, or anxiety, um, like public speaking. But for people with social anxiety disorder, that level of fear is quite intense and it can be uh, a bit uh, debilitating. And in particular, what we start to use as a defining feature to characterize the disorder, social anxiety disorder, is that that fear can be so intense that it starts to result in impairment. And that's a a core criterion across a lot of anxiety and psychiatric disorders more broadly, but it certainly is with social anxiety disorder too, where not only are you concerned or fearful um, of what other people may think or how they may be evaluating you, especially negatively, um, but it starts to get in the way of what you need to do. Um, So some manifestations or examples of what that could look like could be that you're then avoiding, let's say, going to or doing things that you would otherwise want to do. Let's say that you're very fearful of... um, you know, parties um, or, or social gatherings in the non-COVID era, just for simplicity's sake, for the example. Um, and you want to go, you want to connect with other people, but the idea of doing that and having to come up with conversation and and engage with people, especially if it's say like, people you don't know, um, is is really nerve-wracking to you because might you say the wrong thing or might they think something. Um, negative about you. And that worry or that fear associated with these evaluations from other people can be so intense that then what you want to do is go, but instead you don't. You withdraw, you stay home. So that behavioral avoidance can be a really clear um, uh, indicator of impairment stemming from social anxiety disorder. Um, Other impairments can be, uh, or other examples can be, you know, with a class presentation. Um, You know, I've sat with people where they actually ended up taking extra coursework to avoid having to take a course that had a, um, 
a class presentation component within the curriculum. So they're making choices that are guided by that fear in a way that's kind of causing them uh, distress or causing them a lot of problems or impairment, or they're, you know, failing a class because they're doing great, but they can't do the presentation, or it's so difficult to do the presentation that they skip it and they take the F because they skipped it, and that brings down their whole grade. So it's causing impairment. The other thing I'll say about social anxiety disorder that's important to know is that sometimes it can be very general so that there are a lot of different situations that people um, may be nervous in or scared of. And and sometimes it's quite circumscribed. And that's the one, uh, that's the instance where you'll commonly see there might be a discrepancy between how people feel or act in some situations uh, than they do in others. So you may have someone who's quite extroverted and one-on-one is very sociable and and engaging and, and outgoing, but then you put that same person in a different situation, let's say having to give a formal speech or having to meet a large group of people, um, all of which they're unfamiliar then that situation is really challenging for them. So just being thoughtful that just because someone is in some contexts very socially skilled and seemingly comfortable and you know outgoing doesn't mean that there can't be other situations that are really challenging for them. And the thing that I will end on to plug here is that this can be so frustrating because inherently built into the definition of that impairment is it's blocking you from doing something that you would otherwise really want to do. So can't you imagine if, look, I'm looking to forge new relationships or friendships and one of them, one way to do that is going out and meeting new people in certain contexts and I want to, but it's just so much that it's so hard to, it feels so intolerable that I don't know if I can do it. And then instead I stay back that can be really frustrating and upsetting, um, especially if you don't know that what you're experiencing, unfortunately, is common. But I say, I mention it because just knowing that you're not alone can sometimes feel validating and remind you that um, even though it's unfortunate other people have to experience this level of distress, it's not it's not uncommon and we know a lot about it and it often is treatable. So social anxiety disorder is one of the most responsive types of psychiatric disorders that responds well to intervention. Um, So I just want to plug that to instill at least a little bit of hope. Should you be someone who has really intense social anxiety, there are solutions that can be quite effective and can really help equip you to pursue the things that you would otherwise want to pursue. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Figuring It Out. I want to remind everyone that your life is valuable and it matters and that there are people who can help. I also wanted to remind you that the National Suicide Hotline number is 800-273-8255. Thank you again for listening and sticking around with this podcast. Thank you to my guests for coming on the show and sharing your stories and advice with me. Especially now that I've graduated, I'm really excited for where this podcast is headed and for the content we're going to be producing and just for this next chapter of my own life. Thank you again, and I'll talk to you soon. I hope you're doing well.